Melanie and I are not negative people. We almost always want to focus on the positive. And by and large, I'd say we're pretty optimistic, wouldn't you? Oh, yes. But one of my favorite teachings to give at a journey is on holiness. And the biblical concept of holiness might be very different to you than what you grew up with. Biblically, it's pretty exciting, and I think it's appealing. But occasionally in your life, you have to deal with the very opposite of holiness. You have to deal with evil. Fortunately, we seldom have to come face-to-face with real evil. But when we do, we need to know how to combat it. The Bible says our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realm. That's from Ephesians chapter 6, verse 12 in the NIV. We don't want to get all da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da on y'all. But it also seems good to have a reminder about what to do and what not to do when you ever run into this kind of spiritual force of evil the Bible describes. Because likely the first reaction we all have is to feel like I'm a little bitty David facing the ferocious giant Goliath. And you remember that scenario. The armor the world, or the king, provided was puny and it was inadequate and didn't fit. The crowd jeered. The curses were hurled. In other words, if we're in that scenario, we feel inadequate. The biblical descriptions about Satan, who's the author of such evil, says that his M.O. is to intimidate, deceive, and destroy. This is the role of a bully. And his primary intention is death. Death to our good of reason, death to our will, and ultimately to our life. We've all had some of these experiences in our lives just because of the fallen world we're part of. But we want to talk to you today about the most flagrant example of evil that we have ever personally encountered. And mostly we want to share with you the godly antidote to it. It's a real resurrection story. Although we didn't see it at the time, we just experienced it. It was only later that God made clear what we had encountered. I was ordained an Episcopal priest in 1988. In 2000, because of irreconcilable biblical differences, almost all of our congregation left the Episcopal Church in the United States and merged into the Episcopal Church in Rwanda, a more conservative branch of the worldwide Anglican Communion. My bishop then became Archbishop Emmanuel Kalini. He filled the role of spiritual advisor, confidant, encourager, godly example, and friend. He visited us in the States many times, and at his invitation, we went to Rwanda on several occasions to minister, to hold our journey conferences, and to participate in the healing God was doing in a country that had almost been decimated by evil. When Archbishop Kalini invited us to participate in the remembrance of the 10th anniversary of the Rwandan genocide, he asked if I would write a liturgy to take to villages where we could participate through translators in healing services with people who were still severely traumatized by what had happened to their families and their neighbors a decade before. 
Now, just a little background for those of you who might not be familiar with the genocide in Rwanda. For a hundred days between April and July in 1994, members of a minority ethnic group or tribe were murdered in the most brutal ways by another tribe. The tribes lived as neighbors, shared the same language and customs, and worshipped together. Their children played together. The reasons for the uprising of the evil are, are complex and political. One of the tribes was intimidated, deceived, and virtually diminished because they did not know how to combat it. Ten years later, we met with survivors. After almost a million were murdered by machetes, half a million were raped, and two million had to flee the country. When we got there, our first stop on this trip was at the Kigali Genocide Memorial, a sobering experience for sure. You enter through an archway that says in French, never again, and the bones of about 250,000 victims are interred in buildings in a garden whose beauty disguises the terror and horror of their deaths. There are pictures of the victims, stories of vile acts, and the ever-present declaration that such atrocities will never happen again. And yes, as I said, it was sobering, but it was also beautified and somewhat sanitized. The next few days were very different. We took a small group from our Journey Prayer team with us. We were driven to remote areas in an eight-passenger van that had seen better days and desperately needed spring. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I remember that. There was a bumpy ride over potholes and through washed-out areas that looked impassable. We'd come upon a small village or, or community where most of the inhabitants were waiting for us in the local church. I'll never forget the first place we went. It was so dismal. The church building was a crude concrete block structure with a dirt floor and wooden planks across stacked concrete blocks for benches. And our van had broken down along the way, and there was no way to notify the people we were running late. So when we finally arrived, they'd been sitting on those hard benches for almost two hours, just sitting there in silence, waiting for something. They'd been told that American ministers were coming to help them, and so they showed up. But it was the most depressing scene I can ever remember walking into. The place was packed, maybe 60, 70 people. What do you think? Maybe more. Maybe more, I think, yes. We walked down the hard-packed dirt aisle to the altar in the front and faced the most expressionless people. Every eye was focused on Conley as he greeted them, and he prayed. And I remember thinking, God, this is going to take a major miracle. I read the liturgy that Signa had written at the request of Archbishop Collini, and in it, we all implored God to cleanse the secrecated land and to heal his people. All of it was translated phrase by phrase into Kenyarondan. I led them into a prayer of confession of their own sins, and then into receiving God's forgiveness, and then to forgive others, even those who had sinned so horribly against them. And the whole time, the people were listening, they were praying, they were responding, they were very respectful. But I could see through an opening in the wall, I mean, you could hardly call it a window. Outside, there was a shed 
that held piles of human bones and skulls. It was their memorial to the genocide where on this property, hundreds had come into this building, their church, for refuge, and they had been murdered or mutilated in this place. And this was the place where they were still coming to worship. It was grim to say the least. It's hard to find a word to really describe what it was like. All of the people were very responsive, much more so than I expected. After we completed the prayer service through the liturgy, we led the whole group outside to the area of the shed with the bones and the skulls. Led by Archbishop Kalini, we took water that had been blessed, something they were not familiar with, and sprinkled it on the site in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Then we sprinkled the holy water on the people, declaring that on the basis of their confession of sin, their willingness to forgive, and the power of God's love, that they were cleansed and set free from the curse of death. This is a loose translation of 1 John 1-9, through 9, which says, He is faithful and just, and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. That was on a Saturday. We all returned the next day to worship with the people at their regular Sunday service. And the contrast was like night and day. We entered the same church with the same people singing, dancing, celebrating life, and demonstrating life on their faces. Each one of them hugged us with tears in their eyes. There was so much emotion. God had set them free. It was a miracle to see it. Our team was as excited as they were. Death had been overcome by God's holiness. About a year later, Archbishop Kalini visited us again in the States. He said that after the prayer service, a long drought had been broken, which had plagued that area for years. The rains came, crops were flourishing, and this tiny remote village had come to life because a road was built coming up from Burundi, bringing trade to these impoverished people. Some people might call that coincidence, but if you were there, you would know it was not accidental. You could feel the Spirit of God hovering over the place. When the people were obedient and they chose to confess their own sins and receive God's forgiveness, as well as forgive those who had sinned against them. And the people who lived there knew it too. People don't change that quickly without divine intervention. When God says He'll turn our mourning into dancing, that's exactly what we saw. We were eyewitnesses of the impossible, except for God. The next day, we were taken into another village, larger than the first. Its centerpiece was a large corrugated steel building that housed more human bones than you can imagine. A whole room was devoted to crude wooden shells with hundreds of skulls. It was the most grotesque thing I've ever seen. A church where people had fled to find refuge from the murderers was preserved as a shrine to the atrocities. The altar cloth still bore the dark stains of blood. Huge piles of bloody clothing filled one corner of the space, and the place reeked with the spirit of death, even after a decade. It didn't take much to imagine the horror and terror of the people who lived there. We went through a similar prayer service as before with the liturgy of cleansing and forgiveness with a larger number of people. We were told that the pastor of the church and all his family had been killed in their home, which was adjacent to the church building. 
The current pastor was in a neighboring village the day we were there, but his wife invited us into their home, the same home where all the previous clergy family had been slaughtered. I don't know if I can accurately describe what their home was like. The dwelling was simple, concrete block, dirt floor, two rooms for seven people. But the oppression of the place where so many had been murdered 10 years before is impossible to describe. Several of us on our prayer team nearly passed out from the spirit of death still lingering. The pastor's wife was like a zombie. We prayed over the home, dousing it liberally in holy water, then pouring some over her, leading her in a prayer through a translator of confession and forgiveness. She couldn't understand our words, but she understood the power of God who moved in such an unmistakable way. She cried and cried. Being told I was a pastor's wife, too, she clung to me as though the refreshing work of God in her life was connected to me. I asked what the word in Kinyawandan was for light, and I kept repeating that to her over and over. She smiled, but she cried some more. For several more hours, she held on to me as we walked around the village. We sat under a tree on a bench for a long time with her head on my shoulder. I think I knew a little bit of how she felt. When all you've known is death and depression and someone introduces you to life, you're afraid the life might leave with them. So with a translator, I assured her it was God who brought the change, and He would never leave her or forsake her. And I've often wondered about her husband's reaction when he returned home to find a brand new wife. That would be remarkable. Yeah. These are true but dramatic instances of God's power to overcome darkness with His light. Your miracle might not be as dramatic or come from such horrific beginnings, but it's every bit as real. We so often make it so difficult, but it's not. It's really simple. You confess your sins to God. They might be a reaction to what someone wrongfully did to you, or they might be an overt action on your own part. There are all sorts of rationalizations for why we sin. We simply confess them, such as, Lord, I have sinned against you and others by, and then name those things that you've done in the people that you did them to. Then we receive his forgiveness. This is a promise from God. If we confess to Jesus, he forgives. God promises that. But we often don't take the time to receive what he forgives. Lord, I receive your forgiveness. I take it into myself, and I wear it as my identity. Then, empowered by His forgiveness, we are enabled to forgive others. We simply say something as, I forgive those who sinned against me. You know, it doesn't mean those who sinned against us weren't wrong. They were maybe even as evil as the perpetrators of the genocide. But it means you're not going to let them keep you captive in the grips of sin and death. They're holding you hostage as long as you don't forgive. It's really as simple as that, even though sometimes it feels like it's the hardest thing you've ever done. The next week in Rwanda, we held a conference for pastors around the country. Many of them, maybe most of them, had never been to the capital city of Kigali in their lives. 
Vans were sent for them in small villages in remote areas, bringing them to the Episcopal Cathedral, where they were housed in barracks-like rooms. As an aside, much of the expense of busing them and feeding them for three days was made possible by a generous gift from our friends at TPZ in the Netherlands. We had just completed a week-long conference with them, and after they covered their expenses through the offering, they gave what was left over to us to share with the people in Rwanda where they knew we were going. I remember the leadership in Rwanda having to explain to all these rural pastors how to use a toilet. Many of them had never seen one before. It was so funny. They kept telling them, don't stand on it. Keep your feet on the floor. Now, all this may sound very primitive, but those pastors who came knew the Bible. Many of them had memorized long passages of it. And out of all the places in the world we've been, Conley and I agree that that group of pastors asked the best and the most spiritually intuitive questions of anywhere we've ever ministered. Would you agree? I would agree, definitely. They were brilliant, and they loved the Lord with all their hearts. We felt a tremendous responsibility in teaching these pastors because we were told that they would be memorizing our teachings from the notes they took, and they would be sharing them in their churches for months. During the conference, focusing primarily on confession and forgiveness, two men stand out as the most poignant examples of following Jesus I've ever seen. Well, three, really, because I'm going to include Conley as one of them. The other two were Rwandan pastors. One of them asked Conley a question. It was about a situation most American pastors never have to deal with. He told us that during the genocide, his wife was giving birth in their home to their fifth child. She became very sick and was dying She whispered to him that immediately after the baby was born, their next-door neighbors had brought food, and she was sure they poisoned her. Now, poison was commonly used to murder. These neighbors were in his church. Their children played with his children. They were considered their friends, but they were of a different tribe. His wife did die but not before she made him promise to not let the children ever go into the neighbor's house. So his question to Conley was, you say we forgive no matter what. How can I forgive this? They killed my wife, and I'm raising five children alone. I watched Conley's face, and I prayed for godly wisdom in his answer. He walked over to the table and took his Bible with tears in his eyes, and he said, I can't possibly imagine being in your situation, but I also cannot apologize or change what God commands us to do, even if it doesn't seem to make sense. When we obey God, it works. And later, that pastor came forward and embraced Conley and thanked him. The pastor told me that for the first time in 10 years, he felt free. It was awesome. Conley, tell them about that brilliant youth leader who stood up near the end of the conference. This young man was well-educated and articulate. He stood in his place in the chairs with the rest of the group. 
to begin the most succinct and accurate synopsis of the origins of the genocide I've ever heard. He went back decades in history and outlined a series of events that created the perfect storm for evil to take over. Then he walked forward and stood face to face with me. He said, I hated you when you first began to speak. I hate all white men. I blame you and all other white men for instigating the genocide. I came to this conference because Archbishop Kalini invited me, not because I wanted to hear what you said. I knew it would be all lies. That's what white men do. They even provided thousands of weapons for us to kill one another. But I also heard the Word of God, and I love the Word of God. It got very quiet. (laughs) And at that point, the man standing in front of Conley fell down hard on his knees on that concrete floor. And he looked up at Conley and he said, I confess my hatred and I repent of it. I see it was spiritual evil and I choose to forgive you and all white men and I ask you to forgive me. And that moment was literally pregnant with the Spirit of God breathing in on all of us, waiting to see what would happen. Conley felt to his knees as well. And with deep sobs, he said, I've received your forgiveness. And I ask you to forgive all of us white men who deceived you in any way. And the two men embraced one another, still kneeling, both sobbing. And then all the chairs emptied and every pastor in the room went forward, fell on his knees and sobbed. It was the most holy moment I think I've ever witnessed. And eventually, they all rose, and still, with all these men in a huddle, Conley declared, Lord Jesus, together, we all receive your forgiveness, and we allow it to become our identity. When we obey God, only then are we truly set free. Before we left Rwanda that time, I was asked to speak at a meeting in Kigali, of the Rwandan chapter of Prison Fellowship, the ministry started by Chuck Colson. Well, as you can imagine, I spoke on confession and forgiveness. In that crowded room, there were relatives of victims of the genocide, survivors of the genocide, perpetrators of the genocide who had confessed their sins, people who were hardly maimed through the genocide, and all who had chosen to forgive, having confessed their sins, and they received forgiveness. They worshiped in song and dance, as only Africans can. Together, victims, survivors, and perpetrators danced before God. They even pulled me up into their midst, and we experienced such joy that it was like a taste of heaven. Isn't that incredible? This might be the greatest miracle of all, this kind of forgiveness and reconciliation. If this resonates with you at all, in your life, with any situation you're going through, give it a try. It's so simple, you might think it won't make a difference, but what can it hurt? All you have to do is, with your heart, cry out to the Lord, Jesus, I have sinned against you, and then name what you've done, to whom, how, and then say, Jesus, I ask you to forgive me, and then say, Jesus, I receive your forgiveness. And then, Jesus, I now choose to forgive those who wounded me. Amen. 
Until next time. Thank you for listening to this episode of Yellow Sofa, Modern Day Miracles. To find out more about the Badish Baz ministry and to connect with them, visit www.signabadishbah.com. The link for that is in the show notes. Special thanks to Daniel Matthews of Rockwell and John Rhodes of Rhodes Recording for producing this podcast. You can learn more about them by visiting their links in the show notes. Finally, if you're enjoying this podcast, consider leaving a review and sharing it with a friend. It truly helps.